Good morning, listeners. This is Paul Boyce, President and CEO of PWGC, and this is the Environmental Echo by PW Grocer. Uh, our topic today is going to be marine construction, you know, a very important issue and, and, and concept here as we are based on Long Island, and, well, I just said it, it's an island. We're surrounded by water, so there's plenty of opportunities for marine construction, and that can be very diverse and range widely from... Uh, you know, shore stabilization structures to uh, marine type things for harbors or, um, you know, birthing boats, docks, bulkheads, wharfs, piers, jetties, groins, seawall. I mean, I could go on and on and on, and we probably will this morning. But we'll try to keep it, uh, you know, succinct and to the topic. Uh, but it, it is a pretty important topic for, for Long Island. Uh, I have two terrific guests today. I have Jenny Lund, a project manager and PE at PW Grocer Consulting, and I also have Brian Hefflick, and also a PE and project manager at PW Grocer. They're both in our engineering group, and they work not exclusively, but a lot on our marine-type construction projects. Uh, I might mention that Jenny's family was is in the dock building business and uh, has been for, oh my gosh, probably 50 over, years or over so. Over 50 years. Over 50 years, so she's got a, a great knowledge and, and background and, and uh, marine and timber construction with those types of uh, facilities. Um, but again, if, if anyone is interested in the, in the topic or you have questions or you want to reach out to us in, in, about anything, best way to get a hold of us is through pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. And again, this is the Environmental Echo. So let's get right into this, this great subject of marine construction. And I know I mentioned a whole bunch of different types of structures. Uh, most of them are what we call onshore structures. Um, what qualifies as marine construction, guys? You know, It's a pretty broad category. As you mentioned, you kind of touched on a few of them already, but it's pretty much uh, any structures that are built um, along the shoreline or within a, a waterway. Um, you kind of mentioned a few of them already. So common ones are um, docks or piers, uh, bulkheads, seawalls. Um, you mentioned jetties um, and also revetments. Um, you can also probably qualify a dredging as marine construction, which is uh, you're pretty much excavating uh, material from a, a harbor or bay bottom, usually to increase the, the depth of, of water for um, navigation or in a marina if you want to be able to fit larger boats. Brian, anything you want to add to that? Uh, sure. You mentioned uh, kind of the larger offshore structures like oil platforms or like wind turbines. Uh, we yeah. don't do that type of work. <laughs> frequently, but um, I think there's also undersea cables. I know we have a few jobs like that uh, as far as um, dr horizontal directional oh, yeah. underwater bodies or through water bodies. Oh, yeah. So at, at PW Grocer, right, typical project for us, you know, it's it's something on shore, you know, or at the shoreline. You know, what do we do? What, what's, what are we doing these days? What's, what's a common project? Um, I would say probably bulkheading and then um, docks or piers or floating docks for marina. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about, we have a couple projects going out in um, Sag Harbor where we just finished a big project which was for um, a lot of bulkheading. Um, so driving steel sheeting into the, the ground to create, um, I guess, embankment or... Uh, stabilized shoreline. Yeah, stabilized shoreline. Um, and then also another project where um, doing some improvements to an existing marina, but then also um, trying to extend the marina, so adding in additional floating docks and uh, a fixed wave break, to, which will help um, break apart waves instead of having them kind of crash through the marina and pr uh, damage any boats or anything that's floating there. 
So uh, new construction, uh, renovations, repairs to existing type of facilities, what are we doing primarily? Sure. So we've also done a few inspections of existing facilities. Uh, one was an existing timber pier um, in a local village. I actually uh, mobilized my kayak to be able <laughs> to go in and around the uh, or under the pier uh, and observe kind of the condition of the uh, fasteners and bolts as well as the timber structures. Uh, and you can assess kind of like what condition it's in, uh, its existing lifetime or remaining lifetime, and recommend if it needs to be replaced and how to replace it. Oh man, uh, I know we've we've done piers, we've done wharves, right? Mm -hmm. uh, definitely docks, the bulkheads. Um, yeah, gosh, I, <laughs> it just goes on and on, and it seems to have really picked up in the last I don't know four or five years. You know, sort of post Sandy, mm -hmm. right? With this type of construction, you know, uh, resiliency, climate change, rising sea levels. How does that impact marine construction? That's that's a big hot topic lately. Obviously, uh, these structures are right there at the forefront, you know, when you talk about sea level rise. What are we doing about that? How does that impact the way we design these, th these types of structures? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So not all uh, marine projects are considered resiliency projects, but a lot are, and they certainly must take into account uh, those forces from the very beginning to be able to have a sustainable design. Um, so yes, you are looking from the very beginning at what the tide cycle is and uh, during a storm event, how high are, do you expect waters to get? Um, what type of wave forces are you dealing with? Is that, are those waves carrying debris? Uh, and then what type of erosion is going to be happening during this storm? So you have to be able to design your structure from the get-go to be able to withstand all of that. Um, and anticipating what those forces will be is a huge and kind of a I guess a difficult uh, operation or design uh, <laughs> practice. So you do have agencies like NOAA or FEMA um, that do have published um, data on storm events that we would design for in certain areas. Uh, so you can go on to either like the flood maps that FEMA has, uh, NOAA has weather stations or weather Brian, breeze. do you mind letting our listeners know what <laughs> NOAA and FEMA stand for or who those agencies I are? I certainly can. NOAA's right. not the guy in the boat. No. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Yep. And then FEMA, I am talking about the Federal Emergency Management Agency. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Continue. Yes. I didn't mean yes. to interrupt. No, that's fine. But I did. <laughs> So yeah, FEMA hosts uh, flood maps that will, um, you can look up the site area and it'll project onto that map uh, where you would expect to get uh, flood hazards. Uh, whether there will be wave action there, um, when you'd expect a flood, what you would expect the flood height to be during mm -hmm. a storm event. Um, and that helps us uh, determine what the height of a bulkhead would be, for instance. Um, we use that for drainage as well. I know Jenny does a lot of drainage work. Um, we also want to make sure that any outfalls that um, discharge water into a water body, that they have check valves to prevent backflow. That is also a huge issue that could cause flooding in upland areas. Uh, and yeah, Jenny. Yeah, we also use, um, I think it's the NOAA website that has information on different buoys, which helps provide um, what the mean low water um, and like mean high water is. Um, so you can try to design around that, anticipating different um, elevations of 
um, like your title cycles. Um, so that helps with what Brian mentioned, designing some of the aspects of the like check valves. Um, also, too, shortly after Sandy, they published, um, forgot who published it, but it was a website that gave you what the actual um, flood heights were that were found throughout the island. So that also was really helpful when working on is, trying to is design Is that stuff. what we're designing for right now, today? Um, right now, I, the design is usually the base flood elevation plus two feet, um, but it depends on where you are. Um, and like what municipality, but that's kind of the the standard. So what dictates the base flood elevation? Is that Superstorm Sandy levels or is that, you know, 500 year storm or, or some sort of surge? So base flood elevation, uh, again, it'll depend on what area you are along the coast, mm -hmm. but usually it's the, the 100 year um, flood elevation. Um, and then that will be plus the, the two feet. Um, if you are designing though, like Brian mentioned, um, the FEMA flood maps have uh, it's a line that's called the, I think it's the limit of moderate wave action, uh, which kind of shows you where um, in all of the mapping that is, has been done, where they anticipate waves to, I guess, what their breaking point is and when there won't be wave action that can potentially affect or damage a structure. Um, so it'll depend on whether or not you're inside or, I guess, on the seaside or the land side yeah. of that line. Um, so that's another thing. But uh, this Usually the base flood elevation is the, I think it's the 100-year uh, flood elevation. And is that now changing or continually being updated because of, you know, as I mentioned, maybe potentially climate change or rising sea levels as time progresses? You know, they're predicting, you know, see by the end of this, this century another 30 inches in sea level rise or, or more. I believe it's the New York State uh, Code and Regulations, speci specifically New York State, uh, they have a table that uh, is divided up by region and by risk level um, and by year. So if you want to design a structure that'll be, you know, have like a 50-year lifetime, you can look and see how high they expect sea levels to rise in 50, in 50 years. Uh, so, yeah, we do incorporate uh, a lot of that into our uh, designs. I mean, because it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen us, we've, we do the floating docks. You know, that's, that's real easy. That yep. can go up and down with the tide as need be, right? but you get like a fixed pier, you know? It always just blows my mind that, you know, I'm gonna set it this high, you know, and I'm gonna have a boat tying up to it and the tide's gonna drop, or the storm's gonna come in, the tide's gonna rise, what's gonna happen, you know? And, you know, people may take that for granted, but we as engineers have to figure out, you know, what's the best elevation to set that platform at, or, you know, how are we gonna tie this boat up so we don't have any problems uh, down the road for, you know, the, the boat owner, the boat itself, or, or other boats in the marina. You know, yeah, so this is pretty interesting how you guys, you know, decide this, you know. Another thing to consider, too, is um, you also, when doing design work, have to be cognizant of what's going on in the neighborhood. Um, so for mm -hmm. uh, one project that we just worked out in um, Sag Harbor, we weren't really able to raise the, the height of the bulkhead that additional couple feet because um, more towards the, I guess, the 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 town or the more inland there was existing buildings so we can't raise the bulkhead two feet and then have all the other <laughs> structures that are nearby at their original elevation because then you're just kind of creating more potentially more damage for for those oh uh, well i was going to mention uh, edge protection as far as once once you decide to i guess armor a shoreline or protect your shoreline with a bulkhead or a vetment mm -hmm. that how you end it is very critical because you may end it, but your neighbor may not have the means to build that structure. And if you end it in a way that's not 
I guess, well-planned or responsible, you could actually inflict more erosion at the end of your bulkhead. So you need kind of like a, a regional or a neighborhood-wide plan when you do this type of work. So that, that leads to a good question then is who pays for it? You know, if it's a <laughs> regional thing, is it just the people right there at the shore or is it, you know, the town, the county, the state? I mean, what are the ideas behind that? So for, yeah, for residential projects, it certainly is on the, uh, I guess, the homeowner or the property owner uh, to take on the burden, the financial burden of that. Uh, they do have to get their uh, design or their plans permitted by the local agency. So that's when it should be picked up as far as how to responsibly, you know, build the structure so that it wouldn't impact neighbors. It's never easy, is it? No. And, and I've seen, I've worked with you in a couple of interesting projects. You know, you mentioned like some um, slope stabilization right down there, mm -hmm. bluffs, you know, always major erosion sites, uh, not just from like runoff, but you have groundwater seeps and weeps and everything else. Uh, Brian, can you mention a, a project or two where you, we've had some experience with some of those uh, really dramatic ones out on the, maybe the east end or north shore? Sure. So you mentioned bluffs. The uh, north shore of Long Island features gorgeous... 60, 50, 100, 100 foot tall yeah. bluffs uh, that people have built homes near or around. Um, those bluffs are constantly retreating due to either natural uh, erosion forces like, you know, you have rain, you have waves at the bottom, you have gravity. Um, and as they retreat, they eventually retreat towards, you know, a place <laughs> where someone's living. So those have to be protected. So we, we've got these, these, these structures up on a bluff and you, mm -hmm. The slopes eroding to the guy's back door. Mm -hmm. You know, what does he do? Or her, the homeowner, what do they do to, to, to prevent their house from <laughs> well, falling into the, into the sound or to the ocean or wherever they're situated? So the, uh, the best defense for a bluff and on its face, the, as in the longest side that is sloped, is to have vegetation on that uh, slope. So if there's no vegetation, one of the most important things is to plant vegetation, something that's uh, native and drought-resistant, um, something that doesn't need irrigation. Um, at the bottom, there is commonly a bulkhead. Uh, a bulkhead is a vertical uh, retaining wall um, that is built right there on the that beach. That could be timber or steel type sheeting, Brian? Yes. Okay. Also vinyl. Or, or vinyl. Ah, yep. yes. Mm -hmm. I forget the vinyl. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, North Shore commonly has boulders, so sometimes it's a little difficult to install these structures. Mm. Uh, and then, so yeah, you have the bulkhead that you want to build to a height that would withstand wave forces, and then you have the bluff face that would slope back from there. And do you have to terrace that bluff face at all, or how does, how does that work? Is it just a, you know, the, the natural angle of repose? What happens? So yeah, the soils have a natural angle of repose, as you mentioned, and that's really what you want to emulate. Um, if you want to do something steeper, uh, you can involve terracing, um, which would uh, involve constructing kind of like a timber uh, boards perpendicular to the face and you can plant behind those have we ever done any like multiple step bulkheads uh we've done a few that is a possibility depending on you know what access you have to the site and what's available oh man and every site's unique so yeah <laughs> i just i remember there's one that sticks out in my mind is when you, you brought back some video of a groundwater seep coming mm -hmm. out of a, a face of a if it was a bluff whatever you call it on the south sh uh south fork and it was, you know, I'm not going to say it was a river flowing out of there, but it was a stream, mm -hmm. you know, and the erosion that was going on was just, it was uh, 
substantial. Yeah, I think you know? he said it looked like a battleship had hit the, the bluff. It, it really did. It looked like, you know, naval bombardment, you know. I mean, uh, unbelievable. And, you know, these are the types of challenges we face living on an, an island, you know, with that type of terrain. And, and people do want to live close to the water. That's one of the reasons a lot of us live here. You know, we want to enjoy those uh, scenic and, you know, recreate out there and all that fun stuff. But, uh, man, you got to be prepared for it, huh? Certainly. So, guys, would you tell me a little bit, uh, you mentioned vinyl, you know, materials of construction, you know, what's best suited for these types of applications, like the, the bulkheads, the piers, the wharves. Uh, I mean, I know seawalls, uh, it's going to be rock, but, you know, what type of rock is there anything, you know, what are we dealing with? What's our media here? Uh, sure, well, I can start with bulkheads since we kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, so the main three materials would be uh, timber, vinyl, or steel. Um, and if you use steel, it's usually going to be um, an epoxy coated. That way you don't have any corrosion due to salt water. What about aluminum? I've seen some aluminum sheets. Uh, I think that they have been used on, um, I would say, I wouldn't say smaller projects, but I, it's not as strong as some of the other materials that I just mentioned. I've so. also seen fiberglass reinforced plastic, the FRP. Yeah, there's a company or two that produce yeah, those. Those look pretty neat. Yeah, and I think that there are more and more products that are coming on the market now, just trying to be a little bit more innovative. Um, but uh, a lot of, especially like residential structures, will usually be vinyl now because it's really lightweight. Um, it also is... Um, it's able to withstand a lot of, of force. So um, it's, it's, it's strong enough, and it's, it stacks up to steel and timber and all the other good it's materials? It's not as strong as steel, but for residential purposes, it's certainly strong enough. It's also less expensive than steel, which is why ah. a homeowner would prefer to install vinyl mm. as opposed mm. to, to steel. Um, it's steel, lighter. It's so lighter, uh, yes. Contractor equipment, it's easier to mobilize. Yeah, That's so a big factor. steel is obviously very heavy, um, and it's also more expensive. I wouldn't say it's twice as expensive to install as compared to vinyl, but it's probably pretty close. Uh, I, I like the, the the lack of corrosion compared yes. to steel. Less chance for marine borers and all that stuff, like timber, right? So yep. it's, it's a pretty inert material, but you know, as long as no boats are slamming into yes. it, because I remember <laughs> we had concerns with our Sag Harbor project when we were looking yes. at it, right? Definitely. And Somebody bumps into it. <laughs> yeah, and timber, like I said, is not, not used nearly as much anymore just to other other products that are, are on the market. I think vinyl, to some degree, kind of replaced that. Um, installing tim the timber bulkheads is also a lot more labor-intensive, where the vinyl just kind of, it's a sheet that just gets pushed into the ground, and um, you they interlock from one to the next, so they just kind of get installed one after the other, so it's a little bit more seamless. When are they watertight when they get interlocked? Yes, they are, and they're usually be um, at the the top there's usually holes that they use to hook um onto them to install them and the vinyl that gets driven in like a, a vibratory uh yep. method just like the steel yep wow and what's what's your family using these days what's uh, its primary material they do of a lot of vinyl do, do a, a lot, lot of residential vinyl? work yes yeah, so a lot of vinyl so Dang. steel less so like too i said it's a lot more expensive so are there are the limits on the vinyl as to how far it can be driven or how deep? I guess it depends on the soil it's going in, but yeah, what's the longest vinyl sheet you could get if you had to? You could probably get it pretty long. I think the limit is the open height or the reveal. So you'll have, it'll retain maybe like a 10-foot high wall would be good or maybe even a 15-foot high wall. But once you get higher than that, the bending forces on that material would then lead you to maybe wanting steel. And we have to tie back the vinyl similar to steel and timber with, like, dead men and, you know, anchor rods and all that fun stuff? That's correct, yep. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> all good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
what about like the the uh, rock revetments, you know, or seawalls? Mm-hmm. What are we what are we using, and what type of rock? How heavy does it have to be? What size rocks? I mean, you know, these are all things that you know people sort of take for granted. You know, they say, "I'll oh, just put it up." You know, well, they get a two and a half ton boulder down there. It's not exactly like I can just roll it down the bluff. You know, what's what's up with that stuff, Brian? Correct. So one of the uh, the benefits of revetments over bulkheads is it. It can be installed on an angle, so like a 45-degree angle is pretty typical, and that's better at uh, dissipating wave forces without inducing erosion or the loss of the beach in front. Um, So they're very popular now and a pretty good alternative. But as you said, yes, you have to construct them of giant boulders. So you can expect a a revetment to require rocks that are about four-plus feet in diameter. Uh, Those are very heavy and very expensive to get in place. I mean, I, I one particular, not one of our projects, but probably the most famous, if you want to call it, revetment on the island, Montauk Lighthouse, right? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I believe that that's an ongoing project. They just started to, to redo that. I mean, do you know anything about that project? That, that's got my interest. I do know a little bit. I do know the Army Corps uh, is working yep. on it, and I think they have released the plans for it, so you can... But I, I mean, see, but yeah, if it, I'm sure many of our listeners have been out there. Maybe you guys have walked those rocks, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're designed so you can do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's they're massive. And <laughs> yeah, know? that's on a very exposed point. So, yeah, they need to be to resist the uh, waves. That could they get, you get some there. huge wave action out there as a surfer. That's one of my favorite spots to surf on the island, you know, mm-hmm. right out there in uh, Turtle Cove, right out in front of the lighthouse and uh, great place. But, uh, yeah, it gets it sees swell from many different angles. You know, all different heights, different sizes, different periods coming in, smacking that thing. I mean, the, the level of design and attention that has got to be placed into that, you know, you, you can't, again, can't take it for granted. But, again, people go out and see this nice big rock formation, and they like to go fishing from it and walk around on it and, you know, all sorts of other things. But its its real purpose is to stabilize the tip of the island so that lighthouse stays there for us, you know, which is the main attraction out there. I agree, yeah. So along those lines, you know, we do these interesting projects, but to me, you know, the, the ones that I've been involved with, it's before we go to actual construction, you know, we get done with doing our design, our due diligence, we figure out what we need to do, and then we got to get this thing approved. You know, it's not like you just, you, you walk into a, you know, a retail place and you, you put your money on the counter and you walk out with a product. Um, this has to get reviewed by, could be s- several agencies or levels of government. Uh, you mentioned the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, the navigable waters of the United States, you know, that they're always involved. Can you guys describe to me a little bit about the permitting process that's, that's involved with these types of projects? Uh, sure. Um, I'll start with the Army Corps since you just mentioned that. So that's going to be at the federal level. Um, and they really deal with anything that's being done within navigable waters of the United States. Um, so there's a couple different permits that you might potentially get from them. Uh, the most common, I would say, is the nationwide permit, which is um, they have like a, a series of general permits that can be issued for minor projects that are fairly standard in um, completion. So something like a bulkhead or a dock. Um, so it makes it so that a new permit doesn't have to be issued every single time. Um, so the project would just kind of fall under this one general nationwide permit. Um, they also have, I think it's called a, a letter of permission, where um, if the project is very minor, if they don't think that there's going to be any objection to it, um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't have the potential to cause a lot of disturbances. For instance, in Sag Harbor, when we wanted to push the uh, wharf 18 inches yep. seaward, that was a nationwide permit. Okay, that's not going to fall under the general. That's that's more of a yeah. big deal. Yep. 
Um, and then there could be a, another permit, which would be um, just a spe specific permit for that project. So if it doesn't fall under one of the other two categories. Um, and then that's at the federal level. Then at the state level, you have um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation or the DEC, uh, which they have a joint application, which um, is just like a standard application form that they have that you can file for a number of different permits. So one of them could be um, either excavation or fill in navigable waters, which would be for like dredging, which we mentioned before. Um, there could be one for, I think it's um, like docks, moorings, and platforms, which would be if you're doing um, like a fixed dock or a pier. And then there could also be one for tidal wetlands. So if you're working along the shoreline where there is wetlands and vegetation, you would um, apply for that permit. What about, well, you mentioned uh, vegetation. What about the fish? I know we've had some projects where we were limited on when we could be doing in-water work because of either migrating or breeding fish species. How does that impact these types of projects? Uh, it definitely um, alters the schedule, <laughs> you could uh, say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that is a permit condition that we've seen. I think it's come from the Army Corps before, where they uh, limit the time of the year that you can perform in-water work. So I think it's um, the one that we've seen, I think, has been April from April 1st through, I think, September, where you can't do any in-water work because they don't want to disturb migrating So we couldn't species. drive sheets, we Correct. couldn't drive piles. Yep, uh, exactly. But so if, if as long as we're up out of the water, we can continue to work? Correct. So um, for the project we are talking about in Tag Harbor, um, luckily the contractor, we were able to start in September, and the contractor was able to get all their in-water work done by... Um, I think it was pretty much January. It was cold. Yeah. I, I remember it was um, very cold. <laughs> so they were able to get all the sheeting in, in in time to meet that deadline. But it definitely makes it tough when uh, you're coordinating projects, trying to get permits. You don't know how long it'll take for the permits to come through. Uh, so well, that, you can, that was, that was going to be my next yeah. question. You know, the, the typical permitting process, you know, how long does this take? You know, that that tends to drive people nuts. Like I yes. said, it's not like you walk up to the, the window at McDonald's and say, I'll have a Big Mac, and you walk out 10 minutes later. It doesn't happen this way. No. Um, we've seen as long as two years, um, which is definitely a very long time. Um, but usually it should be somewhere between six months and Jenny, a year. Jenny, just so you know, the Empire State Building was designed <laughs> and built within a year. <laughs> that not was the 1930s, <laughs> all right? It's a little different now, but t you're telling me two years to get a permit to, yes. to, to, to do a, a wharf, a pier, a dock, a, yep. a bulkhead. It, it's just, it blows my mind. Yeah. And it's just got to infuriate the, the owners and the clients that we work for. Yes, it gets to be very difficult to try to explain sometimes because we're kind of at their mercy. To We can provide all the information that they need, but depends on where they are in the review process or how many other applications they're reviewing. Well, that, that's my, my follow-up question will be, you know, why? Why does it take two years? I mean, obviously, they may come back with comments and stuff, but generally, sometimes I've seen it's taken 12 months just to get a first review. Are they backlogged, or is it just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's other priorities? Or I think it's definitely backlog. Um, it could be just not having enough of the technical staff to be doing a review of so the permits. Yeah. It could be um, in the one instance where it took us two years, um, they kept changing the project manager that was reviewing it. So every time you'd kind of um, follow up with them to see where you were in the process, and they would say that it got passed to someone else, so it kind of starts all over again. And, so and how, how did our client react? <laughs> not, I mean, they realize it's not our fault, yes. but they're at the mercy of the regula yeah. regulatory agency, but they still, they, they've got... 
they're you know if they're a municipality they've got obligations to the residents and you know the, the users of these facilities and structures yeah it's definitely tough to explain and obviously we want to do as good of a job as we can for our clients um, and we try to obviously do what we can on our end to reach out and follow up but you can only kind of push some of these agencies so much um, especially because they kind of get to it when they get to it so we just need to make sure that we get things submitted as soon as we can and just follow up and keep our clients updated as to how things are progressing man it is the red tape and the bureaucracy it sounds like with just you know like i said i read about fact about the empire state building being designed and built within you know a single year which is amazing <laughs> of course it was the great depression and they were looking for jobs and it was a whole bunch but what you can accomplish and what it takes to accomplish this nowadays it's just i mean i understand the importance of you know the environmental and regulatory reviews this is the environmental echo so we are environmentally focused but you know and i understand the fish you know we have to be cognizant of them you know if we can't just disregard and build when we want but um Marine construction, you know, what makes it unique compared to other projects we might do in, say, the civil or environmental engineering world? Brian, you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, I think waterfront areas are usually a brownfield, so it ties into some of the past uh, podcasts that we've had as Mm -hmm. far as there might be a lot of history there with past development, um, particularly on Long Wharf. That site had a lot of past development. There was, a, I think, a... a berthing facility for whaling ships in the oh, yeah. 1700s. Apparently, Thomas Edison tested torpedoes there in World War One. was what we were told. I didn't know that. Um, there <laughs> wow. was, I think the Long Island Railroad had railway lines there, so we dug up railroad ties. Um, didn't find any environmental issues. Just <laughs> Thankfully. Just <laughs> and yep. there was supposedly a locomotive that either ran off those tracks into the water that we we're somewhat expecting to find or hit <laughs> so luckily that's so didn't we, we didn't either. drive any steel sheeting through a, uh, a train huh no nor a torpedo <laughs> even more important correct um, or you could have um, as you mentioned wetlands you could have a pristine you know untouched environment that you need to protect um, and wetlands are very vital to Long Island as they um, contribute a lot of good functions as far as like filtering out sediment or wave attenuation well you resiliency we're not gonna beat that topic to death on on this subject Mm -hmm. but yeah absolutely you know that's 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 our natural buffer you know and a lot of these you know surges and and, and wave uh, effects so it's it is important Mm -hmm. Uh, besides that you're dealing in a saltwater environment usually so corrosion is always a big issue Um, any type of component that's made of steel uh, you kind of have to oversize so that it has some type of sacrificial um, kind of depth or width to it. Uh, again, you want to expect it to have, let's say, a 50-year lifetime. You have to kind of anticipate how much it's going to corrode over the next 50 years, and will it still be serviceable then? So like when we coal tar epoxy, say, like a piece mm-hmm. of steel, mm-hmm. do we have to coat the whole thing, or do we leave it bare below the mud line? How does it work, Brian? Uh, we typically coat whatever side we believe is going to be in contact with water as well as the the length uh, once it gets into the mud line uh, you coat it a little bit but you don't have to do the full length into the mud line or full length into the soils and how far do you you know I, you, this is getting into the design but you know mm-hmm. what's the rule of thumb when you're driving these sheets in you know, like is it 30 percent above and 70 mm-hmm. percent in or, or the vice versa uh, it can typically be one to one so for every foot you have above the soil you have one foot embedded in the soil 
Oh, geez. Um, that can improve once you have, um, you mentioned Deadman before yeah. or anchors and, and tiebacks. Tie so you can reduce that with uh, structures like that. Wow. <laughs> I would say one thing, too, we were talking about scheduling and potential conditions you might get issued from a regulatory agency. Um, you're also obviously working with the weather and the tides, um, depending on a project that you're doing. If you're working in like a small bay or harbor, you might only be able to work at high tide or you might only be able to work at low tide, depending on what you're, d you're doing, especially if you're working on just mobilizing to the site, you would want to be able to get to a site when it's high tide so you don't get your boat or barge stuck somewhere along the way. Mm -hmm. um, That's a great point. Yep. So that and also, too, just very weather dependent if it's really windy. Um, Always yeah. is. Yep. If it's really <laughs> Always windy, is on the to, water. You have to worry about, obviously, um, if you're, say, driving pilings, you have this 50-foot long piling that you need to pull up off the, the deck of a barge, and now this thing's hanging in the air. You don't want it to be gusting at Blowing 30 miles around. an hour yeah. and having this thing swinging all over the place. It's just not safe. So just things like that that you kind of need to contend with, um, which can also obviously cause delays to projects um, during the construction phase. So I think that's something that also makes it a bit more unique than, say, building something on, on land where that might not be as much of a concern. I mean, you brought up the tides, and that's, that's uh, like I said, that was a great point because we've had other projects that weren't necessarily marine construction, but they were down by the water, like we were trying to get water mains in the ground, right? Well, we had to wait for that tide to go out and yep. drop, so the water level went down so we could put a pipe in. You know, it's just a similar issue you, just, you don't think about when you're, you're building these things, you know. Um, what about when you're, you know, rehabbing structures and uh, maybe sandblasting an old coating off? How do we, you know, ensure that we're not going to make a mess or contaminate the water, you know, uh, keep things clean, avoid getting the grit, or the, if it's, say, it's like a lead-based paint or something that we're taking off, like, I don't know, like on bridges, which is not really what we're talking about, but we have these, you know, coated steel sheet pilings that the coating starts to really deteriorate, and they, they, they oftentimes they remove it. What do you do? So the most foolproof method is probably to install a cofferdam, which is a structure that would be a temporary one, where you would install steel sheeting seaward of what you're trying to clean, and then you can then make that watertight and then dewater the space between. So that way you have kind of an open area to work in. That's obviously the most expensive and rarely done. That you'll see on major bridge projects. You won't see it usually for um, recoding a bulkhead. So like in, a, in our instance, it was just more cost effective to just go further, like I said, 18 inches seaward in this instance and drive new sheets and then just backfill it with like stone or soil. Correct, yeah. So, and, and you get the advantage of now having a, a wider wharf or pier or whatever you're, or you're building. Also, too, depending on um, what material you're blasting, um, if you get floatables in the water, you can put out like a boom mm. um, or a turbidity curtain, which will um, it essentially floats along the water, and you can kind of um, loop it around where you're working. And that way, any material that um, is floating on the surface will get caught in that, and then you can pull that in and then clean that out to make sure stuff doesn't get too far from the site. You know, just to maybe try to bring this thing home a little bit, uh, some projects, right? We've talked about a whole bunch. We definitely talked about our Sag Harbor project, which is one of our, our bigger marine construction projects that was like a six or seven hundred foot long existing wharf that you know really needed a facelift and you know one of the aspects I did want to touch on on that project in particular was 
not only was it the marine construction portion, but we also looked to make some improvements to the local water quality. Jenny, can you talk about what we did on that project to improve water quality around the wharf? Sure. Um, so the, uh, the existing wharf before we um, completed the project had all of the water that actually um, any stormwater would sheet off of the parking lot and go so into the... So the, the, the deck on the, the wharf was a parking lot. Yep, exactly. So uh, it was an existing parking lot, so any water would sheet off of the parking lot into the adjacent waterway, which obviously, if, as you can imagine, if there's a car that's leaking any oil or fuel, that is now entering into that local water body. So Or any cigarette butts yep, exactly. or floatables, Garbage, anything yes, just exactly. goes right off, huh? So what we did in the design is we raised the elevation of the perimeter of the site and turn, turned it so that all the water drained to the center of the site. And we installed some uh, catch basins and some drainage piping and two stormwater treatment units that would remove things such as um, trash, debris, sediment, and also any hydrocarbons. And from that unit, um, the water would get treated and then would discharge out into the bay. Now, those units need periodic maintenance, right? It's not yep. set it and forget it? Nope. You have to maintain. You have to at least look into them every every six months. So you just open up the cover, similar to a, a manhole cover, and you just kind of look in to see if any sediment or debris has been collected. Uh, once it starts to fill up, you'd get like a vacuum truck that would come and suck any of that debris out. And then you can uh, close it back up and then inspect it again in six months. So usually in the spring is a good time to inspect it, um, mostly from in the winter when there's like all the sanding and salting operations. Okay. You might get some of that that gets collected. Part of the uh, permitting of that project, we had to get a letter from the village to be sent to, I believe, was it the Army Corps or the DEC? I think it was the DEC. That committed to maintaining those systems. So. Uh-huh. So to get those permitted, you you have to. I'm sure the village is inspecting them regularly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we will follow up. So what other projects? You know, what, what were some of the more notable uh, marine constructions at, at PWGC that we've done in say the past you know five six years? The local, um, I guess, Port Jeff. Uh, yeah, that was Harbor Front cool. Pier yeah. uh, inspection that I did via kayak. Um, that resulted in a repair effort. Uh, we made a whole well, bunch of recommendations. That, that one was interesting because they were noticing some sway uh, on the uh, on the pier when they were holding like events and stuff like that, if, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Right. So they initially called us because I believe they had 300 people, or an estimated 300 people on that pier all on one side, and people uh, reported that it started to move a little bit. So that's what they called us and asked us to take a look at it. Um, the kind of the major improvement we made was um, replacing all of the cross braces that help prevent such swaying, yeah. as well as uh, recommendations on installing new ones in different directions. Um, also found a few, you know, pretty corroded fasteners and bolts that... Uh, I remember, yes. You showed me some good some section through. loss on some of those things, yeah. which was getting close. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely a fun, notable one. I believe that pier is around 100 years old, so I also do research to see, uh, you know, how long you would expect a pile to last and if any should be replaced. Um, turns out they last a pretty long time. <laughs> how long? <laughs> um, I believe it was I had to look up some research from, like, the Netherlands that said, you know, you can expect, like, 150 years for some of this. On a timber pile? Yeah. Wow. Um, so they had, they had records dating back to, I guess, 150-year-old piles that, Apparently, we still had a you know measurable service lifetime. So, cool. So we use that to uh, you know in our report and our recommendations. 
What about some of the floating dock work? Again, we've done some of that stuff out in Sag Harbor yep. also. Yes, yeah, so we're working on a project now in Sag Harbor where there is an uh, existing transient marina. So we're proposing to replace all those floating docks um, and move some pilings around to be able to make some of the uh, finger piers where boats dock um, next to a little bit longer, just to a little bit better uh, serviceability for those that are visiting. Um, and then also uh, put an extension on for uh, eight additional slips for I think boats up to 60 feet long um, so that would be pilings and yeah, boat. floating docks and then I mentioned before the uh, fixed wave break to help kind of um, break apart any waves before they come through the smash marina. someone's boat up yep exactly so, so it's like with a floating dock right what gives it its, its buoyancy Jenny uh, they're usually the, um, like plastic drums basically so they can be I think um, s standard sizes say like a f four by four or four by eight um, and it's just kind of um, almost looks like a, a plastic container uh, it's usually filled with foam and that's what gives it its um, buoyancy I was going to say you want to keep something to get something in there to keep the water out in case you do get a leak yep and so then foam's a good idea yeah and then you build um, the, the dock on top of that which is usually made out of timber timber yep oh interesting well, this has been really informative, guys. You guys have any closing thoughts or ideas you want to share on uh, marine construction before we wrap it up for the day? No, I think I'm good. This is great. Also good on this Brian, end. oh, man, you guys, <laughs> well, you, you did cover the topic very thoroughly, and, and, you know, we are engaged in quite a bit of this work at PW Grocer. Uh, I do want to thank the both of you for coming in today. You know, uh, hopefully our listeners found this informative and educational. It's, again, our guests today were Jenny Lund a project manager and professional engineer in the engineering group at PW Grocer, and Brian Heflick, also professional engineer and project manager in the same group. And I am Paul Boyce, President and CEO, your host of the Environmental Echo. Uh, that is the PWGC podcast. And again, if you have further questions on this topic or any other topics we've covered in the past, you can feel free to reach out to us via pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. And again, this is the Environmental Echo, and I thank you all for listening today.